You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Catherine Eustler. She is the author of a delightfully juicy new book titled The Duchess Countess, the woman who scandalized 18th century London. The heroine of the book, I think we can call her a heroine, is Elizabeth Chudley. And we're going to talk with Catherine about her life, times, exploits, and renown detailed in this book that reviewers are calling. I call, I look through a bunch of reviews and chose the best ones, uh, the best adjectives. The book has been reviewed as gripping, scintillating, magnificent, and a rollicking read. Thank you, Catherine, for coming on the podcast. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We have a, we have a, saying here in the states and it may be a worldwide saying so um if it is then forgive me for giving trying to give the colonies credit <laughs> and that saying is well-behaved women rarely make history <laughs> so was elizabeth yeah. chudley well-behaved and did she make history um, okay, so I think that that expression is very apt in this case. I think she wasn't well behaved, and I think she, yep, she did make history. So, two out of two. <laughs> do you do you ascribe your to that maxim? Do you think there's a lot of truth to that? That a lot of the women we memorialize over the decades or centuries, Catherine the Great, Cleopatra, Agrippa, the list goes on and on, right? That they they're little little have a little streak in them. Yes, I do, because partly I think that the there were so many limits based on female behaviour. And what we now think of as well behaved isn't really, you know, what we thought of then. So anybody who sort of stepped out of line and did anything interesting 
was going to be criticised by somebody. So I don't think they need to sort of rise to any great sort of level of kind of, you know, malign evil. They just, anybody who was sort of out of line got noticed. And so that's where history begins, really, isn't it? Getting noticed. (laughs) That's certainly true. Uh, It's hard to imagine, I think, how much back then, and in, in more proximate history, but just talking about late 18th century Europe, uh, England in this case, how much women's fates were tied up or tethered to the men in their lives. Talk a little bit, please, just about that general condition and just how far removed from our current psyche in many ways that it is. Yes, I completely agree. I think in a funny kind of way, that's something we get very strongly through fiction, be it Jane Austen or Bridgerton or whatever, you get this terrible sense of women in that period being sort of trapped and they're going to sort of marry or what, you know, nothing, sort of humiliation or whatever. But in history, it kind of kind of gets lost because you always have this choice, particularly biography, like how much you can write about someone's life and how much you can write about the context of the period. So, but one of the things that I do find very interesting about this 18th century we're talking about is that there is this suffocating sense of, for women, of not being in control of their own destiny. So even if you're kind of born into quite a privileged life like Elizabeth Chudley was. She was born into that very sort of Jane Austen sphere of connections without money. So there was no dowry, but there were kind of strings she could pull, which meant she could become a maid of honour at court, which was a salaried position and probably the only salaried position someone of her sort of ilk could get. Um, Her whole future depended on marriage. There were no other options. There was, you know, politics, law, you know, medical, nothing. You could either go into service, which you couldn't if you were from her background, or be a governess for which she wasn't well educated enough, or you got married and and that really was it. So we we would look at somebody like her and as you know, because you've read the book and it basically turns into a sort of bigamy story without telling the whole thing. She makes terrible mistakes in marriage, but it, that was her only option was to get married. So this is how her sort of mistakes started because that's sort of like a career for women was who, who are you going to marry? This is the time of the enlightenment. Or the, I, I don't think it's fair to say the supposed enlightenment in relative yeah. to what came before. It was the enlightenment for sure with these brilliant thinkers, men and women, Mary Holstencraft. Yes. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yes. So was it when I was reading your book and, and you make the point about marriage over and over again, as we said before the podcast started, my graduate degrees in medieval history, uh, yeah. 13th, 14th century English history. When you read about the monarchy, it's all about having daughters so you can marry them to powerful people. So in a sense, how enlightened was the enlightenment when it came to women having control over their lives? Had, okay. had much changed in the previous five, 600 years? Well, 
I think the Enlightenment, as far as women went, it was a slow burn. It's a very interesting, you know, it's a rethink of everything. But as you quite rightly say about the medieval period, um, in, in marriage, and certainly amongst royalty and in the sort of upper classes, it, you're, a woman is a pawn in a sort of potentially a dynastic match. So, as you say, a royal daughter is going to be part of a potential peace treaty or an alliance. And other sort of grand British families just wanted to make sort of connections with each other. And so, but what the Enlightenment does eventually, but it, as always with these things, it takes a long time, is it turns all of that on its head. And what you've got in the 18th century is this very interesting shift between marriage being a sort of social contract made for other reasons, be they financial, dynastic, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of international, and it being a choice, a personal and romantic choice. And this is something that was sort of discussed and debated and written about for many decades before it sort of became accepted that that was what it was going to be about. What brought Elizabeth Chudley to your attention? I mean, there's plenty of amazing women to write about who who made their mark in history one way or the other. What, what? I, I kind of sense what brought you to her based on on this interview already. But what really said, you know, I'm going to spend some years making this woman's story better known. Yeah, isn't it strange what what sparks one's interest? But a combination of things. So her specifically, um, a very brilliant book by Simon Seabag Montefiore called Catherine the Great and Potemkin. And I was reading um, that and he wrote about how this sort of scandalous English duchess turned up in St. Petersburg. She wasn't really a duchess. She was just calling herself one. She turned (laughs) up in this dot. It was full of animals and an orchestra and she was desperate to become friends with Catherine the Great and she had parties on this boat and everybody in St Petersburg was absolutely intrigued by this woman. Some people hated her, some people wanted to be her friend and I I hadn't heard of her at this point so I was reading about this person thinking who on earth is, is she even real? So then I started going down this tunnel of reading about her and where she came from at this huge trial in London attended by 4,000 people. And I thought this is an incredible story. But also from that, um, I read English at university and I had I was absolutely sort of smitten by the 18th century British authors, the um, Addison and Pope and the sort of, very sort of it was the beginning of British satire, really, and and a great time of British journalism too. Exactly, and the beginning of British journalism. And I, you know, I have been a journalist and I edited Tatler magazine, which was founded in 1709. So the 18th century was always a period of fascination. And as the English press rose exponentially throughout the century, it sort of needed more and more people to write about, and it was the sort of creation of celebrity, really. And people who were famous, not really because they'd done anything particularly impressive or they were royal, but because they were a person around things, around whom things happened. And she was one of these. So I came at it from this book and from my love of the 18th century and from my love of journalism, really, and its history. So there were many reasons why I was drawn to this 
Plus, there just hadn't been a really good book about her written for me. She'd been written about a lot, but not for a long time. And I thought she's worthy of, um, you know, a revision. Scholars like the you mentioned, uh, or we talked before the podcast started, scholars like uh, the brilliant Susanna Lipscomb yes. and, and Helen Carr and others are taking history in a completely new direction um, in, in many ways. Yes. Do you consider your book a feminist history? Um, do I consider it? Uh, yes, I suppose so. In that, what, as you say, these many brilliant female, British female historians, and I'm sure lots of American ones too, are doing is that they are. Uh, Hallie Rubenhold is another one I should mention who wrote a brilliant book called The Five. Yes. You know, okay. So they are walking through history in the women's shoes. So that's a completely, it sounds so obvious, but it's actually for whatever reason, quite sort of fresh, which is what was it like to be that person and what was their life and what does it all involve? And so in that sense, I suppose it is a feminist history because everything else has been, that has been written about her, othered her. It's like she's a scandalous person, she's in a trial, but it was the what, not the why. And I suppose that's what feminist sort of history does. There's, okay, let's put this in the context of this woman's choices what was the world in which they were made and why, and why, you know. How common is Elizabeth Chudley's story? I mean, is this just how women were treated back then for good or for ill? Is she in any way a personification, perhaps maybe of a certain class? Uh, but is that just if, could, if we took her name out of it, could we substitute other people's names and it would fit seamlessly right into this story or at least how she got to prominence? Well, yes and no. So she's an outlier in that what happened to her, which is basically a, a huge prosecution for bigamy um, as a very well, already well-known person because she'd been a maid of honour to the Princess of Wales and she'd been sort of written about a lot and she'd become a duchess, you know. So in that sense, she was an outlier. But as a kind of person who was criticised for their um for, for being a woman and for trying to make her own choices no she wasn't you know she is a sort of extreme example of a sort of prevalent kind of sexism so um in that it is so she she's a very good example of some of an undercurrent that was definitely there so what were her crimes do you think she even committed any Her crime, as perceived by, you know, the court and society, uh, was that she had, was bigamy, that she had married one man while still married to another and he was living. Now, her defence um, was that she didn't consider herself married because British marriage law and American marriage law, actually, then was very unclear. There was a marriage act in 1754, which set up all the rules that we still recognise are vital for a marriage. Like you've got to have two witnesses. It's got to be done within certain hours. It's um, If it's in a church, the bans will be read. But before 1754, it was very unclear. I mean, a, a good chunk of the population really genuinely didn't know whether they were married or not. And those who supported her said she'd had a very hasty 11 o'clock at night, impulsive marriage. 
it didn't count. And those who were against her said she she knew she was married. She was just lying. So, you know, one can argue that. What 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 is clear is that ten years later, the law clarified it, and and actually, it, it was the most debated. Even in spite of the War of Independence, it was the most debated act um, of the of British Parliament in the whole of the eighteenth century. They discussed it for a year. It was so complicated, and feelings ran so high because. There were so many things involved, you know, the, the role of the church, parental control, the age of majority, you know, and as we were saying, this battle of head and heart, really, this enlightenment versus tradition. So it was a sort of, so she did get caught up in this sort of transition. Um, so, of course, I'm inclined, having studied her for so long, to sort of believe her and to feel that she was ill-treated, but the English court took another view. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking with author Catherine Ostler. A delightful book that uh, someone's one review said it's got to be a Netflix movie one day. So Catherine, I hope you make some money and they turn it into a movie. The book is called The Duchess Countess, The Woman Who Scandalized 18th Century London. So let's talk about that. Take us back to the mid to late 18th century. Uh, what were the trends? What was the culture prevalent during this time? And how did Elizabeth fit in? Okay, so the the trend the 18th century, really, there were two things going on. One is war. So War of Independence, her trial happens absolutely in the middle of the War of Independence at, at its height in 1776. But even before then, Britain is always at war. Um, <laughs> it seems that way, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, they're either celebrating a peace treaty or they're fighting. You know, it starts off in the sort of the Duke of Marlborough um, that wars in Europe, and we're going in and out. And, but alongside of that, you've got uh, the rise of consumerism, really. We talked about the press, and that's one thing. And the, when newspapers are spread and read out in coffee houses, you've got this craze that we've still got for caffeine and information. Um, mm. And gossip, political gossip, social gossip. So that's where she fits in, because she became a person who was sort of much talked about. She was a sort of very glamorous figure. And... You've also got the beginnings of uh, sort of globalization and sort of the spare cash that fuels consumerism, right? So she becomes later in life a big, great spender. She inherits all this money from her second husband. Um, but what you see throughout the 18th century is what we would now call a trickle down economy. So people began to shop for items they didn't need, be it, you know, jewellery, silver, carriages, yachts. They had in England the huge craze of sort of building houses, people painting fake marble, panelling, you know, importing carpets from Turkey. You know, it, it, the Grand Tour begins. Half of the English upper classes all rush to Rome where they start buying and pilfering statues and art and bringing it all back to English country houses. So there's this sort of rampant acquisition going on 
in the 18th century, of, of which she is part. One of her best friends is a jeweler called James Cox, who builds these amazing sort of clocks, um, one of which is the great star of the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. It's called the Peacock Clock, and it's sort of... It's an automata, it's called. So when the, when, the, when the clock chimes, all these sort of, it's, it looks like a woodland scene and all the sort of feathers and the birds move. And they, they created these incredibly elaborate things that we still find very beautiful, you know, chandeliers, mirrors. It, it, it's, it is part of that sort of enlightenment kind of aesthetic, um, kind of beautiful kind of world that we all sort of still admire. For better or worse, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't read fiction. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes, you know, they're like, "You should read." You know, you should read this, and they kind of yeah. ask me why, and I kind of chuckle and say, "You know, everything I find in a novel. I mean, I've read fiction when I was in college, but everything I can find in a novel, all I got to do is read about Charles the Second, or Henry the Eighth, or Catherine the Great. Like all the juicy, salacious parts of of a, of a novel like there that actually happened these things these these wild debauched extravagant times and but in some ways does Catherine's or does, excuse me does elizabeth's life read like a novel like some of the things that happened does it make you think man this would make a great novel but it's actually true yes and i do think that's one of the other reasons i was drawn to her story other than all the other things that i said i mean i do like reading fiction is that i thought there were so many twists and sort of turns and sort of strange kind of moments that it does read in like a novel to me it reads like a sort of historical thriller and indeed it was one of the inspirations that thackeray used for vanity fair um because and 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 other novelists you know, like Dickens were partly inspired by her as well, because she did just have one of those lives that is, as you say, is sort of better than fiction, because it's sort of unlikely and exciting, but it is also true. So <laughs> you get the information along with the entertainment, in my view. <laughs> there, there, there has been more than one dysfunctional royal family in mm. British history. Mm. But where, where would you rank the uh, the Hanoverians when it comes to uh, drama, hate, and just plain gossip. Okay, um, they were I, t- I pretty high because they had a very niche speciality, which is father and son hatred. Right, so you get this generational. I think you get it three, if not four times. You get father and son at war. And it is sort of, I mean, it, 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 to me, it's fascinating and unlikely. So you've got Anne, the desperate hunt for a Protestant successor. There are something like, I can't remember, you know, over 40 people more entitled to be the King of England than George I. Over he comes from Germany. He doesn't speak English. He isn't particularly interested. He's he's his wife is incarcerated in Germany. <laughs> the elephant and castle, one of one of whom is his half-sister, you know, he loathes his son, George II. George II equally doesn't really love England. He has a wonderful wife, but he's very unfaithful to her. He loathes his son, Frederick, Prince of Wales, to whose wife Elizabeth is maid of honour. And Frederick is very fond of his son, but he dies when he's only 12 and he becomes George III. And then we go, George III, as we know, goes mad. And then he has the 
much loathed Prince Regent George IV as his son, who was at Elizabeth's trial as a child. And so they are really dysfunctional in their sort of loathing of each other. It is fascinating how they just, it's almost like my dad hated me, so I'm going to hate my son, and that's just the way it is. No, I think, I actually think it is exactly that. (laughs) It's just (laughs) very interesting to observe. It's like they learned that behavior, you know, in the, along with the bottle, and that's, that's how they all carried on. It's a scandal, scandal, no matter its genesis or players. continues to fascinate us human beings. Yes. What is your opinion as to why? And how did Elizabeth's drama reach a level of scandal so juicy that the Queen of England became a public spectator? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Very good question. So I think scandal. So I think what we reject, accept, you know, regard is the kind of the norms or the limits of society changes over time, of course, you know, be it forms of relationship, uh, the way we treat our children, what we expect from politicians, and, you know, personal standards, public standards, all of that will move throughout time. But the way I think we test the boundaries of it is through what we all agree is a scandal. So. These are, are these are are sort of testing out our stress tests of society. Really, it's that it, where are our limits, and that this is how we find them. We identify individuals or possibly corporations now who we think have transgressed. So, in your beloved medieval period, it would be all that sort of rough music. And what did we do at Caravari? So the village would turn out and they disapproved. They'd all be banging their saucepans in the middle of the night and saying, you can't behave like this. So that eventually society gets more sophisticated and that turns into attacks in newspapers or trials. But that's why I think scandals are interesting over time, because they will show us what did that society at that time find to be offensive or too much or even just fascinating, actually. And why on Elizabeth, the Queen of England, as you rightly say, came to her trial, even though she was two weeks off having her ninth child, and she brought all her children. So we have two future monarchs there, the future um, Prince Regent George IV and the future King William. So because, for one thing, she was already very well known. She was famous before she even went into the trial because as a very young woman she'd had a sort of um, kind of Lady Gaga red carpet moment where she turned up at a party in a completely see-through sort of fancy dress and everybody had drawn engravings of her um, that were still being sold a hundred years later because her outfit was so talked about so she was already a very well-known person Um, but also I think aristocratic morals were at stake what could this class get away with um you have anticipated my next question but please go ahead and finish okay so one actually sort of two things one was the sort of the stress testing of the aristocracy and the other was the other thing that remains that is the allure of scandal still 
which is the diversionary tactic. So as we discussed, we're at the height of the American War of Independence. One mustn't think that everybody in England wanted to keep America. It wasn't like that at all. It was like Brexit or, you know, your Trump division. Society and Parliament completely divided. They were arguing about it all the time. Nobody could work out what to do. And actually, they were all completely fed up with it. They couldn't find a solution. They couldn't find any agreement. It was an ill-natured debate. So when they found something else to obsess about, they were so happy and relieved. It was <laughs> so they all lapsed on it, including the entire royal family, who were even more sort of fed up with it than anyone else because it was their sort of responsibility and their so. So then it leads me to my next question, which you've yes. you've you've placed on the tee for me, <laughs> okay. along with scandal. What else appears to be prevalent throughout the ages is hypocrisy. Yes. Vice uh, yes. Was, was, however defined, was no stranger to this time period. Yet Elizabeth seems to have been an outsized victim of her contemporaries' kind of societal voyeurism. Is this true or not true? And if so, why? I think that's completely true. And I think it's because there was, you know, you're absolutely right to land on the vice issue. And I had great fun in my book writing up all the personal lives of all the lawyers involved and what they were doing and their sort of mistresses and their illegitimate children and the women they'd abandoned and the children they abandoned and how they... And it came down to the fact that there was one rule for men and one rule for women. And the reason... I mean, we all think, you know, bigamy, it's not great. Why would anyone want to be married to two people at once? But it was sort of... The reason they took it so seriously, other than the fact that England was a... Christian country and it sort of uh, attacked the sort of foundation of the church which was about sort of marriage and family was the question mark it put over inheritance so if somebody mm. was a Buddhist and they had a child what did that mean for you know the estate or the title and the idea that somebody had a child and it wasn't actually in a world before DNA testing who, whose it was meant to be was something that the House of Lords, who tried Elizabeth, I mean, the House of Lords was literally her jury. All 140 of them stood up and got to say guilty or not guilty. They all said guilty, as it happens. But anyway, um, <laughs> this is the topic that most concerned them. What would happen to their titles? What would happen to their estate? And that's why if a man wanted to divorce or be unfaithful, that was sort of tolerated um in a way that it wouldn't be for a woman because in the end it was the thing they most cared about was inheritance is there some little bit of irony here in the sense that this was taking place during the reign of a of america's favorite king george the uh, third and uh, i guess i should say should we say this as we are recording this podcast on queen elizabeth ii's birthday so happy birthday your majesty uh, anyway uh and that George III was famously faithful to his wife yes. and devoted to his wife, Charlotte. And they had, what, I think 15, 14, yes. 15 kids? Yes. yes. So all this juiciness and bigamy and kind of sexualized scandal is happening. But the person who, you know, is supposedly perhaps the personification of John Bull or Great Britain is this relatively pious, certainly very faithful, amazing monarch. 
Farmer George, absolutely, yes. Well, quite, and, it, it, and in that way, she was something of a throwback. I mean, and she was of a slightly different generation. I mean, she had been a maid of honour to George III's mother and had known him since he was a tiny child. And his father, Frederick, Prince of Wales, who himself had supposedly... Everyone always says a very happy marriage, but he did have a sort of mistress at the same time. But he 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 was the first sort of Hanoverian king to take the upbringing of his son really serious, really seriously. And George the Third was, as you said, a sort of model husband in in a way, you know, monarch. So I suppose yes, that was another reason why she was so fascinating because. If people took their example from the royal family, she was out of kilter by the time her crimes had sort of came to light. Uh, Britain was in a different place than it had been when she was young. You know, talk to us a little bit, please, about the actual trial. What what was the atmosphere like? And I want to ask you about the press here in a few minutes, mm-hmm. but you mentioned it was in the House of Lords, which is the upper chamber of the British Parliament. They were basically her jury. Uh, tell us about the trial. What was said, and and did she ever have a chance to prevail? Did Elizabeth Chudley ever have a chance to be exonerated? Okay, so the trial, it was said, had the atmosphere of a sort of national gala. It was like what we would think of, sort of like the wedding of William and Kate. Everyone was incredibly excited. Um, it was a huge event in London. It was in Westminster Hall, which is sort of still, it's the sort of ancient, medi- properly sort of medieval, a thousand-year-old chamber that you walk through to go into the House of Lords. And it had all been specially kitted out at vast expense. And it looked like a big red amphitheatre. It had been lined with seats um, all the way around in a sort of, you know, in a kind of C shape. And... Over the course of five days, 4,000 people came and went. Tickets were printed and programmes were printed as if it was a sort of uh, <laughs> as if it was a theatrical event. And each peer got given seven tickets um, for themselves and their family, and they started selling them on the black market. And, you know, the prices went up and up. People crossed Europe. People came from Rome, from Paris, you know, days and days of travel to try and come. And everybody... Um, and people got very dressed up. So there was sort of this one bit, James Boswell, Samuel Johnson's, Dr. Johnson's biographer came in and he said he sort of couldn't believe the diamonds catching the light as it came through the window and these sort of amazing sort of hairstyles and people sort of, and everybody met at the sort of coffee shops next door and they all piled in early. And then Everybody came in very late, so they all sat there for sort of four hours on the first day, waiting for something to happen, and two women fell off the end of the seating and they got stuck on someone's head and they had to be separated and they had to put a special mounted guard outside and no traffic was allowed so that it was all quiet. So it was an enormous event. And the, the even just the seats alone, the doorman was charging people to come in and have a look at the sort of empty auditorium. And he made sort of 500 pounds over the week before. So the anticipation was intense. And there was a special, there was a royal box and the, the sort of, because everybody knew the Queen and the Prince of Wales and every, everybody was coming. Um, so then Elizabeth had a sense of drama herself and she did rise to the occasion. She... Style. She dressed entirely in sort of 
black with a sort of white collar. And everyone said she looked like Mary, Queen of Scots, going to the execution. So she presented herself as a sort of martyr, really. And she walked in and she was very sort of regal. And all the newspapers were there and they all sort of said, you know, as they would now, we're going to give our readers a front row seat. We're going to describe this trial exactly as it happens. And for the first couple of days, she did very well. She was very sort of gracious and calm and sort of measured. But then unfortunately for her, it all went sort of horribly wrong when a couple of um, sort of very old servants came out and one of them said I was at the wedding I her first wedding it all came down to was she already married when she married the second husband and so this ancient crone came out and said in front of these thousands of sort of society people and royal family and said I was there I saw her being married by the light of a single candle and this terrible silence fell over the hall as everyone realised this woman was telling the truth. And although one could sort of argue it wasn't a legal marriage, she kind of sort of overplayed her hand by denying it had happened at all. And so the whole thing turned. And then she collapsed and fainted because she was so alarmed. She could sense the change in her fortunes. Um, So it was very, it was very dramatic and she had arrived with these sort of three friends who were sort of maids of honour almost and they were all dressed in white and she had two doctors and the other thing it being the 18th century they kept bleeding her every time they got stressed they took her into a side room and shoved a leech on her arm which actually made her so then she'd lose blood so you can imagine it'd be like giving blood in the middle of a trial when you're already so then she'd come in sort of half faint she wasn't in the sort of best of health anyway for which reason the trial had been put back by three months um so but in the but it had a I mean I don't want to tell the whole story all day but it had a very dramatic ending as well because even though uh she still had her defenders in court including one of the great judges of the 18th century who's regarded as the great figure of British law is Lord Mansfield who was against the whole trial from the beginning said it's absolutely pointless he was sort of kind of good 200 years ahead of himself he thought why would we victimize one woman for a crime that nobody else is going to commit that you couldn't commit anyway because marriage law has changed and he had this sort of really radical view and in the end he sort of got her out of being punished you're listening to the leaders and legends podcast we're speaking with author historian Catherine osler who wrote the duchess countess the woman who scandalized 18th century London. We have a few more minutes with her. Talk very quickly about the press. You mentioned in your book that London, in, by 1790, London alone had 14 newspapers. How important was the press to the trial? And how important was the trial to the press? Okay, that's a very good way of putting it. So, the trial was incredibly important to the press, right? Every newspaper took a side before the trial. It, 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 they knew their readers wanted it. 4,000 people could get in, all the others couldn't. So it was a sort of, they saw it as their sort of public service to uh, write every detail. Um, and they took their positions. So it was rammed full of writers and journalists, Um 
how important was the press to the trial? I mean, I think that had she not already been written about, the trial wouldn't have happened. We were talking about how at times of great division and uh, indecision, people wanted a diversion. Now, because she was already a celebrity, she was known in the press, she it became something that not only people could talk about, people could write about. So if, if the press hadn't sort of invented her, the trial kind of wouldn't have happened because it not only required somebody to pursue her through the court, which was her second husband's nephews who rounded up all the witnesses because they were hoping to get the inheritance, but we won't go into that now. Um, it also required um, the British state to go along with it because it was a very expensive thing to put on. We talked about the seating, but it also had to, they had to suspend, you know, all the business of the House of Lords. They had to pay for all the lawyers. You know, trials don't come cheap. As we mentioned, they had to have the mounted guard outside. So in order for the state to invest so heavily in this, um, it had to sort of seem to be a, a big enough story, which it sort of was because it had been written about so much. So as now, one can hardly separate sort of politics and the press. You know, politicians do something. They're doing something because someone suggested they would or because they criticised them for not doing it. Or, you know, it, it, we can't really draw the line between the two. You mentioned at the kind of the beginning of the podcast when we were talking about uh, Elizabeth and her life and times and exploits that she yes. traveled throughout Europe after the yes. trial. Yes. And, and she was met some of the most famous people in the world uh, and she was well received. If, if this was such a scandal, mm. why was she so well received? Okay, so I think you could divide the European sort of monarchs, popes and people between those who received her. And some people, some people did refuse to see her at all. And some people changed their mind when they found out her story. But someone like Catherine the Great, uh, she loved a story. She'd heard of her. And she was absolutely intrigued, you know, as, as most of us would be. So those who were, and immensely sort of sympathetic. Catherine the Great saw herself as a woman who'd be much criticised for her personal choices. And she was fully alert to the laws that existed for men and, uh, and women in society. And so she was bound to be sympathetic. Um, and, and we should note that Elizabeth's exploits kind of perhaps maybe pale in comparison to some of the uh, exploits of of her uh, <laughs> Russian majesty? Well, exactly. So, you know, she was going to look kindly on her. She wasn't going to judge a woman for having had a husband before a husband, you know. she. Uh, and then I'm just trying to think, so the, the Pope, she was very friendly with two Popes, one in particular, and and the the one uh, the one she got closer to was a great sort of anglophile and I, I tell you what she she had very what we would now call soft power skills okay so she she wanted to get somebody she would work out how to get to them and what would win them over so she befriended the pope's favorite friar he then introduced her to the pope 
Um, her great friend was the Electress of Saxony, who she bonded over with music. Now, Elizabeth loved music. The Electress of Saxony was a sort of multi-talented woman who wrote two operas, which are still performed today, and painted pictures and things like this. But Elizabeth would talk to her as, as an equal. She did, had no fear, and she would sort of find the thing that the person was interested in and relate to them through it. So she was she was she was a sort of strange mix of cunning and self-destructive. The last question before we get to the five questions that we ask all of our guests. Uh, this was this this person was mentioned in some of the reviews and it, it makes sense in a lot of ways, but, but it's more important to me to, to get your take on it. Um, while writing the Duchess Countess uh, mm -hmm. and detailing the life of Elizabeth Chudley, were you ever reminded of the life and trials of Princess Diana? Um, yes, I suppose I was because although Elizabeth had been uh, a maid of honour to a princess of Wales. That's how she first became famous. And it, it's hard to escape the uh, sort of public obsession of a royal connection. And actually, there have only been three princess of Wales's who didn't become queen. One was Diana and one was Augusta, to whom Elizabeth was um, made of honour. So plus this obsession with appearance and romantic choice yes it's very hard sort of not to have that in mind when i was when i was writing about her who's the other princess of wales was it was it charles the was it james the first son henry who is wife who's the third one i think so yeah yeah we've reached the point the leaders and legends podcast yeah. where we ask our five questions uh <laughs> catherine are you ready yes yes absolutely. Susanna lipscomb called these thinkers yeah. So that, I took that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah. What was your first job? My first job. Okay, I was thinking about this. I had so many sort of kind of jobs, as they call them. My um, first paid job was in Australia. It was selling oil paintings door to door, right? So I went on a year off <laughs> and I had to sell these paintings. And I looked so young, this woman called me in and said, right, I'm going to give you a sandwich. Does your mother know you're here? And I said, actually, she's in London. And I had to sell all these awful pictures. But anyway, that was my first paid employment. Commission that, only. It was a disaster. But that, uh, <laughs> that is by far the most unique answer we've ever had to that. After 160 podcasts, that, that's number one. Yeah. Uh, second, what was your first concert? My first big concert that I remember was Oasis at Nebworth, okay? So it was a huge event in the 1990s. Um, I have to say, as a historian, as great as it was, I was more interested in the house because it's where Dickens' best friend, Bulwer Lytton, lived, and it was magical. But the concert was pretty amazing, too. <laughs> if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which yeah. book would you choose? Well, as we're talking about, I think I was thinking about this. This is a very good question. But as we're in the lab one, we're talking about biography. And I'm going to say Robert Mass's Peter the Great, because I think it explains even now Russia 
And it is also the most masterful example of historical narrative biography, in my opinion, that I think one could ever hope to read. He's just a brilliant, brilliant writer. I've read that. I've read Catherine the Great, and yeah. I've read his his book Dreadnought is one of my absolute all time right. favorites. It's exactly so fun, fun book to read. Yeah. yeah. All right. This next question is pretty yeah. tough for historians, <laughs> but if you could witness any event in history be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Okay. Well, this is really this is a really tough one. I mean, I I don't know whether it's uh, is it cheating to say I want to see Elizabeth Chudley's trial because well, of course not. Okay, because I've written about it and I've imagined it so many times in my head and I've seen. I've read the accounts from various witnesses. Of course, I'd love to be in that room looking at all those dazzling people. My graduate thesis was on Sir Thomas Erpinum, who commanded the archers at Agincourt. And so I'd love to be around him and Henry V that day, October 25th, 1415, just to see how how they pulled it off for lack of a better term. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, Living today, yes. two hours off the record, talk about anything you want. Whom would you choose? Um, well, I was thinking about this, and I think particularly today of all days, I'm going to say the Queen. You know, I think 13 presidents, 14 prime ministers. She, from, you know, Truman, Churchill, right up to now, she is living history, and I would love to talk to her. You're going to get one bonus question. If you could describe Elizabeth Chudley in one word, which word would you choose? Um, Outrageous. You have been listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Catherine Osler, author of The Duchess Countess, The Woman Who Scandalized 18th Century London. If you want sex and betrayal and, and juicy press and jewels and fun, this is the book for you. It's terrific. I'm very grateful you've you've zoomed all the way from Great Britain to be on the podcast. It was delightful to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.